Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Heritage Events Live. It's time to repeal the Iraq War authorizations. We're delighted to have you with us. Please welcome Charles Cully Stimson. Cully Stimson is a senior legal fellow and manager of the National Security Law Program at the Heritage Foundation. He has written and testified about the war powers, the law of armed conflict, and is the author of the Heritage Legal Memorandum, Why Repealing the 1991 and 2002 Iraq War Authorizations is Sound Policy. He is a 28-year veteran of the United States Navy JAG Corps, is a Navy captain, and a commanding officer of a reserve unit. He is temporarily serving as Heritage's Chief of Staff. I now turn it over to Cully. We hope you enjoy the program. I'd like to wish a very warm and happy welcome to our two distinguished guests. Uh, this event was supposed to take place last year, but COVID happened, and I'm delighted that you were able to make time in your schedules uh, to come to Heritage. Um, you both know our distinguished guests. Uh, Senator Tim Kaine, uh, who is from Missouri, but now serves as a senator uh, for my state in Virginia, was a mayor, a governor, of course, the vice presidential nominee. Uh, I think this is the first vice presidential nominee from the Democratic Party we've ever had at Heritage, and we're delighted to have you. Uh, his son is a Marine, and he has spoken eloquently for years over the need to reform war powers, um, and um, we're just thrilled to have you here, Senator. Senator Todd Young is a Hoosier. Uh, he went to the Naval Academy. He chose the Marine Corps instead of the Navy uh, to serve his country. Um, he then picked up a master's degree. Uh, he worked here at Heritage for a short stint. Uh, and then um, he has uh, served ably in the United States Senate. Uh, and he too is a passionate, uh, thoughtful person when it comes to war powers. And they have joined together uh, to co-sponsor a bill to repeal the 1991 and the 2002 Iraq AUMFs, and that's the topic we're here to talk about uh, today. I want to split our discussion, Senators, uh, into two parts. One, to talk about the policy part, all right, and then we'll move to the politics. In this town, we tend to co-mingle the two, but I think it's important to lay out the predicate for why we want, why you think uh, that these two vestigial or zombie war authorizations should be repealed, uh, and then we'll move to the politics uh, part. Uh, and the format for today is a moderated discussion. I encourage crosstalk, interrupt me anytime you want. My kids do uh, all the time, and people at work do all the time, so I encourage that. Um, and then we'll leave about 10 or 15 minutes for Q&A in, in the end. So, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11, the Declare War Clause, uh, our founders put that in there specifically as a break from past practice in other countries and Mother England. Uh, our country has declared war five times. We've authorized the use of military force over 40 different times. Um, the 1991 Iraq AUMF uh, purpose was, quote, to use the United States Armed Forces pursuant to United Nations Security Council Resolution 678 in order to achieve implementation of a whole bunch of other Security Council resolutions. That happened and that was passed on January 14, 1991. The 2002 AUMF 
the primary focus of the 2002 Iraq AUMF was the threat posed by Saddam Hussein, and it authorized the president to, quote, use the armed forces of the United States as he determines to be necessary and appropriate to defend the national security of the United States against the continuing threat posed by Iraq and enforce all relevant UN Security Council resolutions regarding Iraq. So we're not talking about the 2001 AUMF. We're not talking about the 9-11 AUMF. So, Senator Kane, let me start with you, if I could, sir. Tell us about the policy behind your bill. You've talked about this in AUMF reform for over a decade. Yeah. Tell us about the policy behind this one. So, yeah, I came into the Senate in 2013, and I was obsessed with this. Probably my obsession goes back to when I was lieutenant governor. And then, like Todd, I'm on the Foreign Relations Committee. I'm on the Armed Services Committee. So I'm on the, you know, kind of in the crossroads where this becomes really important. Um, I look at the policy sort of two ways. One is very specifically about the U.S. conflicts in Iraq, the, the, the Gulf War, um, and then the uh, toppling of Saddam Hussein. The, both of these are over. Um, in the Gulf War, we, under President Bush, uh, defended Kuwait after an attack and pushed back and then made a decision to stop there, but basically helped achieve UN Security Council resolutions. And then the 2002 AMF was to topple the regime of Saddam Hussein. We did both of those things. And so the stated objectives are done and Iraq isn't an enemy. Iraq is now an ally. We, we partner together with Iraq and it should be a little bit offensive to kind of have it out there that we still would view Iraq as an enemy. So I think you, we should repeal these two resolutions because the objectives of both of the um, authorizations have been achieved and, and it's done. But the second is I use this phrase zombie authorizations. C Congress has a way of um, authorizing military action and not putting an end date on it. And then they, the, the authorizations just kind of float out there. And a, a creative president or a president with really creative lawyers can say, oh, hey, wait a minute, this authorization was out there 30 years ago. We can use it now to do a missile strike in Iraq to kill um, Soleimani. Whatever you think about the targeting of Soleimani, the notion that um, it was justified by either of these two legal authorizations should trouble you because, again, these one's 30 years old, right? The other is, is nearly 20 years old neither Congress that passed those would have thought it could have, it could have been used in Iraq to kill a military leader of the nation of Iran. That's not what it was about. So uh, that's why I wanted to put this in. It's kind of clearing out the undergrowth. I, I believe that there is a continuing vitality or need for the 2001 authorization updated, but that the two Iraq authorizations are dead letter and we shouldn't just leave them out there where a, a, a future executive could kind of claim carte blanche authority that, oh, Congress passed this, so I can now do X, which Congress never intended. So picking up where Senator Kane left off, I've said in the paper, uh, which I talked about, your uh, um, bill to repeal these, that Congress really needs to get back in the gym. They need to get back in the, the gym and exercise their Article One, Section 8, Clause 11 muscles. And by doing that, you need to get back in the habit of passing laws that are specific or repealing laws that have no longer uh, any utility. I, I think we all agree that repealing these two would have zero effect as a legal matter on the 2001 AMF, right? Yes. Even the Department of Defense seemingly agrees. I mean, there was a period of time in which 
uh, they didn't even cite uh, in, in, in their 60-day reports to Congress and the War Powers Resolution. Uh, the 2002 AUMF is, is a justification for their conflict. So they left it out. They cited other authorities, the 2001 AUMF. Uh, one could infer from that that uh, uh, that was an admission that uh, these are no longer required for any current operations. So uh, years ago in the 2018 NDAA and before that, Congress passed Section 1264, which basically tells the executive branch in power at the time, tell us the domestic statutory legal authority for any uh, wartime activity you're engaged in. Uh, the Obama administration relied on the 2002 and the 2001 AUMF. Uh, the Trump administration, although they were late in turning in their homework to Congress, in their last one, they didn't even rely on the 2002 AUMF. Right. And you see the Biden administration's War Powers Report just recently turned in, doesn't even mention the 2002. Why? Well, I mean, I'm crossing my fingers. You know, Senator Young and I have been good partners on this, and we hope to get our bill marked up in foreign relations soon. I think the Biden administration is beginning to send the signal that they, like Senator Young and I and, and many other colleagues, view the O2 authorization. And, of course, the 91 authorization is kind of a dead letter now. They don't need it. Uh, to justify ongoing operations, and so why rely on it? Um, and that's that's a positive sign because we not only need a Congress that is willing to act, and it's been a completely by far bipartisan abdication responsibility, Democrats and Republicans together under administrations of either party. We not only need a Congress that's willing to act; we need a White House that isn't just maximalist trying to you know assert every authority they can. So. We will find out soon, I hope, uh, more directly from the Biden administration, but I think they're getting close to saying, hey, you're right, the 91 and 02 authorization should be repealed. It's been a long time since we repealed an authorization. And so your point about getting in the gym and exercising the muscle, Congress has not exercised this muscle for a very long time. Hopefully we can start a precedent if we begin it with this bill. And I want to pick up on that in the politics section because I want to see if there's any lesson learned from prior attempts, especially in the Obama administration when you dropped your bill to uh, talk about address ISIL. Well, there, there's an important policy dimension to this as well, and I, I think former Senator Joe Biden recognized this, which is uh, you want to have uh, issues of, of engagement of military forces, uh, decisions about whether or not uh, you decide to to go to war or authorize use of military force uh, taking place in the public forum. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the only way you can significantly engage the American people uh, and rally them sustainably behind a cause uh, if, if there's public debate and consideration of these uh, matters. So that's what our Constitution calls for. It calls for Congress uh, to, to declare a war under Article 1, Section 8, uh, or authorize the use of military force. And, and, and um, so I think now President Biden recognized that, and should he or a subsequent president ever have to make that decision, uh, then uh, he, he wants to make sure that uh, the American people come with him. So uh, as we talk about policy, that's a very important uh, component of this. Can, can I just say, I want to underline what Todd has just said, because I think it's really important. Sometimes we talk about this in the policy as well. That's what the Constitution says. But let's go deeper than that. Okay, well, there's a constitutional set of provisions. But why does it say that? And, and he's getting at the why of the Constitution, which is um, 
when the founders decided it's going to be a congressional decision, that means Congress has to debate it. Congress debates things in full public view. The public gets educated about what are the stakes. Why is this important? I guess this is in the national mission as a debate takes place up to a vote. If the president just does it on the say-so, president say-so, you don't get that same kind of detailed analysis. The pros and the cons get debated in full view of the American public, and then you don't get the public buying into the mission. And I, I would argue it's sort of an immoral thing to do with respect to troops. If you're going to put troops in harm's way where they risk their lives and health, there ought to be a clear like imprimatur that this is in the national mission. And the way you get to that is following a debate and a considered vote that, that should be the toughest vote you ever cast to, to send troops in to risk their lives and health without that kind of a debate and the imprimatur of, yeah, this is in the national mission and the legislature says so, that's a shortcut that, that has always seemed to me to be kind of publicly immoral. So what Todd is saying is, yeah, there's a constitutional framework that we ought to honor just because we say we're going to pull the Constitution. But, but get into the why the constitutional framework, there, there's underlying policy reasons that are really important. And, and those policy reasons date back hundreds of years. Uh, our founders outline a number of grievances after the often quoted uh, initial passages of the Declaration of Independence. Many of those grievances pertain to the abuse of military power. Uh, the power, of course, was concentrated in George III, and, and, and uh, uh, it was understood uh, once it came time for our framers to draft the Constitution that uh, the people need to have a say uh, as to whether or not uh, you, you go to war. So that's why uh, it, power resides with Congress to declare the war, uh, to make war uh, is with the executive. And, and, and uh, it was envisioned, of course, the executive would have some inherent powers uh, that for defensive purposes, when there are threats uh, or, or attacks on, on the homeland, but, but absent those situations, uh, uh, Congress would have to make the formal authorization. Now, all the, all the challenges associated with this is, is there seemed to be some measure of agreement about uh, when there was, uh, when, when there was a, a, an imminent threat uh, posed to the United States or, or uh, when we were under attack was more obvious, of course. Uh, but this notion of an offensive strike versus uh, a defensive strike to avoid an attack uh, has become muddled over the years. Uh, consensus has broken down, and so we need to reassert ourselves uh, uh, through legislation. So I want to table for the moment a discussion of the War Powers Resolution, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I know you've spoken about it, you've spoken about it, <clears throat> yeah. I certainly have an opinion about it, because yeah. I think it does cloud this issue mm -hmm. with respect to your bill, um, and we can bring it up mm -hmm. later, especially in the politics section. Uh, in a floor speech, uh, you gave Senator Kane on November 30th, 2016, honoring a guy named Scott Dayton. Uh, it was really an impressive speech. I mean, your heart was in this. This was not a typical senator talking about a bill. Um, and one of the things you said in that speech is you said, as I conclude, quote, Article 1 and Article 2's allocation of responsibilities are not just about what is constitutional. I think it reflects a value. And the value is this. We shouldn't order people into harm's way to risk their lives unless there is a political consensus that the mission is worth it. Tell us more about that. I just, I, I, if you, if you asked like what would be public immorality, you know, that it would just seem to me that the highest public immorality would be to 
order, pe people who've volunteered for the military, Todd served, my son served, you know, they, they knew they were getting into a line of work that could be challenging and where their lives could be at risk. But if we're gonna order them onto the battlefield, we shouldn't, as Congress, we shouldn't shortcut it. If we're asking them to be brave, well, we ought to at least be brave enough to have the debate and have the vote. Now, since the Constitution, you know, was, the ink was dry in 1787, Congresses have tried to sort of abdicate the responsibility when they can. Um, I think it was back and forth letters between uh, Jefferson and Madison, where Madison said, our Constitution supposes what the history of all governments demonstrate, that it's the executive most interested in war and thus most prone to it. So we have, with studied care, placed the question of war with the legislature. So Madison and they all, all the framers foresaw the George III, the overreaching executive, but they all underestimated the abdicating legislative. And so from the very beginning, Congress was like, man, a war vote's tough. Um, it's, it, you could be unpopular. Even if everything, even if you win, a lot of people will die. A lot of things could go wrong. And so from the very beginning of the Republic, if Congress had kind of duck out of it, they've, they've wanted to. Um, but that is not, <laughs> that should not be allowed. And so, you know, that's why I've enjoyed working with, with Senator Young on this, because he and I, you know, different political parties and on any particular issue, we might see a different particular, like, should we use military force here? But we both have the same feeling that the nation deserves to see the debate, the, the studied care, the pros and the cons, a vote, okay, it's in the national interest or it's not. Let, let's turn to the complicating policy factor and legal factor of the 2001 AUMF, because that's the big elephant in the room, right? I mean, that is the thing that right. people sort of in their minds co-mingle the 2001 AUMF with these vestigial zombie war authorizations. And by the way, since you're in the business of cleaning out the dustbin, get rid of the 1957 Eisenhower Middle East Force Resolution. Yeah, um, right. which is still on the books. Mm -hmm. um, mm. to, to what extent, um, Senator Young, does the 2001 AUMF and the existence of it, and it's the fact that I think we can all agree that it's been stretched beyond any uh, imagination of where it, where it began, because remember, it was authorized the, the president to use uh, appropriate force to go after the people who uh, either authorized or aided and abetted the attacks on 9-11. Mm -hmm. And then it's been defined through case law, through the habeas litigation at Guantanamo, to include Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and associated forces, and now ISIS. Uh, the Obama uh, the administration threw that on top. Is it, is it, um, has it just beclouded the issue so much that people who are your colleagues are just sort of, when they talk about the 2001 it, or 2002, that just brings the 2001 into it every time, every part of the discussion, they can't draw a line I between think so I, I, I think unless uh, this is an issue you spent some time studying and engaging with uh, it uh, uh, because it happens to be under uh, within your committee of jurisdiction or it's just a matter of, of, of personal interest to you uh, there is a tendency to conflate the 01 and 02 AUMF and regard this as, as just some sort of legalistic argument but the 01 AUMF has been stretched beyond all recognition in, in terms of its original purpose. Um, it was designed for us, for us to go after the bad guys uh, in Afghanistan, right? And, and, and Al-Qaeda's capabilities have been significantly eroded. Uh, Osama bin Laden has been killed. And, and, and so uh, it's now being applied across different geographies to different named groups and for uh, a perpetual period of time. And, and even for those um, 
public-spirited and thoughtful attorneys who want to make the argument that O-1 still remains in effect in some fashion, uh, and, and there are a number of those. I would argue that not only do we have a moral imperative uh, to, to speak with unity once again after, after you know, 20 years have, have passed, uh, but also those authorities become attenuated. They become weaker after a period of time. So we need to reaffirm our support uh, by revisiting this issue. So let's, let's draw a finer line mm -hmm. um, to help your colleagues get to the right place. Yep. Because uh, we're trying to be helpful. <laughs> uh, between the, the vestigial Iraqi AUMFs and the 2001 AUMF. Right. Um, so um, if you repealed the 1991 AUMF, alone um that does anyone up on the hill that you're aware of think that that would affect the 2001 amf no right no now it as we traced in our research here the 1991 iraq amf and the 2002 iraq amf are sort of inextricably intertwined mm -hmm. in a way that all other AUMFs are not because they're they have this sort of tendrils and capillaries of un security council resolutions mm -hmm. which they're enforcing um, and they were both going at a particular individual, the, the government of Saddam Hussein, at different, you know, different points in time. But it was the, the same government of the sovereign nation of Iraq that was sort of at issue in both authorizations. And that right. government no longer exists. Are you of the opinion, then, from a policy perspective and a legal perspective, since we're all burdened with law degrees, um, that if, for example, the administration joined you and you got passed the 60 vote threshold and the, the 91 and the 2002 Iraq AMS were repealed, that as a domestic legal authority matter, the administration, uh, when, when confronted with appropriate, with, with sufficient threats, that they would be able to use uh, military force uh, in Iraq with the permission of Iraq. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I mean, it, both domestic and international, we can always help an ally. And so we're in Iraq now because they invited us back in after ISIS started to roll through the country. We're there at their invitation and we are helping them in a security mission. And because that mission is against non-state terrorist organizations that the Obama administration said were close enough connected to Al-Qaeda, that they were covered by the O1AUMF, we have a domestic justification, the O1AUMF, and we are undertaking it in a geography at the invitation of the host nation, so both in domestic and international law, we we protect our ability to protect ourselves in Iraq from non-state terrorist groups. Agree? I do agree. I do agree. Um, I'm not sure I can improve upon uh, my, my colleague's uh, explanation there. Different question. Well, let me just tidy that one up. Mm -hmm. So to anyone who would say, well, if you repeal those, especially the 2002 Iraq AUMF, we can't take care of business as a military matter in Iraq. They're wrong. I think they're completely wrong. Although, although some are making, I think it's taught on the House side, a couple of folks have tried to make that argument in House committee, but I, I've listened to them. I'm like, I, I just don't see it. Um, if you accept the current uh, um, kind of parameters of the O1AOMF, which has admittedly been stretched, we lose no ability to tackle non-state terrorist groups by repealing the 91 and 02 authorizations. So, 
you know, I said this earlier, but I'll quickly reiterate because I think it's on point. Uh, DOD between December of, of 2011 and I believe it's September of 2014, when they issued their their War Powers 60-day uh, uh, reports to Congress, which contain references uh, to legal authorities that that allow uh, the United States government to partake in in, in military conflict. Um, they did not cite, they did not cite the uh, O2 AUMF, only citing uh, the O1. So uh, the, the failure for them to cite, no one was questioning at the time whether or not they had the legal authority under current interpretations of the O1 AUMF to engage in hostilities. So let me bring up another uh, legal slash policy issue just to make sure that we have a clean line between the two vestigial ones and the live and active 2001 AMF. And it's the issue of detainees. So uh, at the height of the war, overall, we had about 102, 3,000 detainees in Iraq, Afghanistan, 779 at Gitmo. Today, we got none in Iraq, none in Afghanistan, and 39 in Gitmo. Yeah. Um, as a legal matter, are you confident that, and let me turn to you since I asked you last time, are you, are you confident as a legal matter and a policy matter that if you repeal the 2002 and 91 Iraq AMFs, that we'd still have the domestic legal authority to detain the 39 detainees at Guantanamo, including the 9-11 hijackers who were on trial in the military commission? Um, I, I think this is something you and I wrestled with, and we determined that uh, as we're working through the 01, uh, it, it, it needed to be included. But um, uh, my recollection uh, is is that uh, by repealing 91 and 02, it would in no way undermine our ability uh, to carry on current uh, detainee uh, activities. And and Todd, yeah. when I was when I've been working, for example, with Jeff Blake or Bob Corcoran revising 01, Todd has been the one to say, hey, but don't you know don't accidentally do something on the revision of 01 that then you know, messes around with the detainees or throws the situation into more ambiguity. But, you know, every discussion we've had about 91 and 02, including discussions that are ongoing with the Biden administration right now, the detainee issue is viewed as unconnected to the 91 and 02 AOMS. Right. And, and, and we would think otherwise if the Bush, Obama, Trump, and now Biden administrations had filed legal documents in the military commissions cases uh, and other habeas cases, which I've analyzed all of them, mm -hmm. written about them, mm. uh, to say that the 2002 was part of the domestic statutory reason that people can be detained. And they never mentioned They've never had it. Interesting. And so yeah. there's decades of documents filed with the, with courts relying on the 2001 AMF. So I think we can take that off the table, too. I'm trying to help that's, you help mm -hmm. everybody that's else. That's actually helpful. Yeah, so, uh, I, I, I didn't know that. We'll put that in the real. Yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> Again, the 1957 Eisenhower... Middle East force resolution. Get rid of that one too. Let's turn to politics, okay? Because that's that's a challenge, and it was meant to be a challenge, right? You've spoken about that on, the, on, on in many of your speeches. Uh, in fact, you called it um, an invitation to struggle, uh, an important part of our uh, constitutional fabric. Uh, the fact that they that they separated power between the Congress's ability to declare war and the president's uh, duty to prosecute the war, and then the Congress can uh, fail to appropriate monies to back it if right. it's an unfair war. So mm -hmm. this, this yin and yang, this back and forth, this invitation to struggle. 
Um, this bill was actually a reintroduction of a bill you introduced in previous Congress that died in the Foreign Relations Committee. And you just mentioned uh, that uh, Senator Menendez may be uh, willing to bring this forward for some consideration. Tell us more about, about your, your hopes and the thoughts on the politics side. So, yeah, Ch Chairman Menendez has said to me, and I think it was reported publicly last week as well that he's saying to the press that he is going to bring up the, the young cane bill um, at, at the next, possibly at the next um, business meeting of FRC, which will be in late May or early June. So there will be a number of bills we'll bring up, but he's ready to bring that up. And uh, we've got good bipartisan support. I think we follow with 13 co-sponsors, right. pretty evenly divided between Democrats and Republicans. So I have high hopes that we could get it done. So yeah, why was it, you know, why why was it foundering, you know, two years ago and why may it have a moment in the sun now? You know, obviously we've had a change in the the makeup of the Senate in terms of who have the majority, but I think that the reason it might have a little more torque now is because of the 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 man that the president is rather than his party. He was the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. Sure. So he and he was in the Senate for 36 years. So you, oftentimes a president, I, and Joe Biden is probably, you know, the, more the student of the Senate than any president since LBJ. And so sometimes a president will see a bill like ours as, oh, they're trying to get into my, you know, get into my Article II powers and they'll want to flex their muscles. But Joe has a very deep understanding for the Article I side of this. And he doesn't want to see the centimeter of Article II power, but he he's not threatened by a Congress that doesn't want to see the centimeter of Article I power. So I think it, the, these are complicated balancing questions, this invitation to struggle. <clears throat> and it's helpful to have a president with a team that understands the Article I perspective as well as he does. And so we're hoping that we're going to get, you know, kind of a green light from the administration before it comes up in committee, which would be enormously helpful on a committee vote and on a floor vote. But that's just because this is a team that really gets the Article I issues, thank goodness. How does the political reality of being in the minority uh, in a 50-50 Senate with obviously the Vice President casting the tie-breaking vote uh, affect your calculus on getting some Republicans on this or interested in this? Well, of course, in an ideal world, it shouldn't impact anyone's calculus, right? Uh, we should look at this uh, objectively on the merits on account of the gravity of, of, of this issue. But mm -hmm. we all know that um, um, even though politics uh, should not intrude on, on foreign policy uh, making, it always does uh, to some extent. So I, I, I look, I, I think that um, uh, you had President Trump uh, who, uh, who, who had uh, led the way towards the end of his presidency and, and wanting to disengage uh, from Afghanistan. Uh, you have uh, a succeeding president, President Biden, who has, has taken uh, a very similar approach months later in disengaging from Afghanistan, not without uh, controversy, right? So this issue of, of war powers is on the minds of all of my colleagues uh, uh, thematically uh, and, and who should decide such things and to what extent. So I think that is helpful. Um, and, and I, I won't uh, belabor a point that Tim made, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's so important. I mean, perhaps the strongest voice for a reassertion of congressional war powers for decades in the United States Senate was Joe Biden. So he's invested intellectually uh, and professionally in this position, as are some of his closest advisors, advisors like Tony Blinken, who went on record indicating 
that uh, a rework of he finessed it uh, as as any good mm -hmm. diplomat would would do during <laughs> during his committee mm -hmm. hearings, but uh, sent a signal that uh, most of us read that uh, they would be open to this conversation of repeal uh, or otherwise reworking 91 no two. Your comment on that? I think I think he reads it right. I, you know, the, the challenge. So, Republicans who might have been a little more reluctant to assert their Article One authority vis-a-vis -vis a Republican president may be more willing when there's a Democratic president. Then what I have to do is because I remember bringing up these issues when Obama was president, and I couldn't get Democrats to go along with me. I, it, the the August 2014. President Obama decided we needed to protect U.S. Consulate in Erbil from ISIS was rolling across the place. You can defend a U.S. Consulate without asking Congress permission. But about two weeks later, that was done, and he said, time to go on offense against ISIS. And I said, you've used exactly the phrase that now triggers Article One. And so I started to say, President needs Congress's authority to do that. And I'd bring that up in a Democratic caucus lunch, and they'd look at me like, hey, don't make life hard for President Obama. And I'm like, but look, it's, I mean, we can't do this with... So I've, I've got to be able to get Democratic votes. Now that we have a Democratic president, some might say, well, gosh, are you trying to you know, clip his wings or curb his authority? But that's why having a potential green light from the White House on something like this could be so important. Because if the Biden team says, we're fine with this, then I'm gonna, then I'm gonna deliver to Todd, I'm gonna deliver 50 out of 50 Democratic right. votes if the White House says green light. So, but I need, I, so I, we gotta work that green light. Let me let me add, let me play devil's advocate for a minute, just mm -hmm. just to just to see your reaction. Um, <clears throat> what authority does the uh, the Biden administration have at all, statutorily, to use the 2002 Iraq AUMF and the 1991 Iraq AUMF, but they don't have in the 2001 AUMF? In other words, they're hollow. They're they're empty suits. There's <clears throat> nothing left to them. What, so what authority do they really have? That they don't already enjoy in the 2001. They they don't, which is why I think this yeah. is an important uh, first step. It rebuilds the muscle memory, it, as you said, Cully, gets us back in the gym, and it may lay a predicate for bolder action uh, later. Should we find a path to success uh, to reform the 01 AUMF potentially, uh, yeah. or 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 do uh, to revisit the War Powers Resolution, which uh, you'll get to, but. Um, I, I think it's important that we take this very significant measure. Uh, to my knowledge, this has never been done before, repeal of an AUMF, and, and, um, and get the muscle memory going so that uh, we can, it's a confidence building step. So from a lessons learned perspective, right, um, politics wise, what have you learned in all your many efforts along the way with Corker, with Flake, uh, as you're learning with Senator Young, um, besides, it's really hard. Yeah. And besides, I'm willing to go up against a, a president of my own party, which you've been bold mm -hmm. in that. Uh, you've been an equal opportunity offender. You've gone after every president for, for not having the spine, as you call it, yeah. to jump in and do it. And I've gone after Congress even more than you the have. president. Yeah. You have, and you've been, yeah. you've been very consistent. Um, so what political lessons have you learned um, and, 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 Showing a little leg here, what do you plan to use by by looking at those, those lessons learned? So, I mean, I, I would say uh, the lessons that I've learned are um, 
Congress does in an equal opportunity way, want to abdicate war votes that are tough when they can. Uh, White Houses are completely comfortable having a maximalist position and they don't mind legislative abdication. I've learned those two things. But I have learned one thing about the intellectual challenge of doing an AUMF to kind of, it's not all lack of backbone. Um, and now let's get to the, and I'm going to talk about the 2001 AUMF. I view the 91 and 02 AUMFs as they are AUMFs to go after a nation state, the government of Iraq under the leadership of Saddam Hussein. Nation states, you know, have Geneva Conventions. Nation states have boundaries. There's a lot of things about nation states we understand. What's hard about the 01 AUMF is it was to go after non-state terrorist groups. And trying to define, well, who is, who is the non-state terrorist group? Well, they change their name and splinter all the time. Well, where are they? Well, it's not a nation with a boundary. They can go here, there, and everywhere. Um, and so there is an intellectual challenge, and this is what we're going to have to grapple with if we try to revise 2001 AMF. There's still a U.S. need to counter non-state terrorist groups. But there is an intellectual challenge to describe the where, to describe the who. They don't, the you know, non-states don't follow Geneva Conventions. I mean, so th there is a challenge in, in crafting it that's more than just a lack of backbone challenge. There's an intellectual challenge to it. I've learned that the American people are tired. Uh, they're tired of long wars. Uh, they're tired of, of being immersed in conflict. Um, I was working here at Heritage. Uh, just months before the, the O2 AUMF was passed, uh, I had just left high school and spent months in the United States Navy when the 91 AUMF uh, was passed. And, and, and so the American people are weary and they want us to focus on some other things, which is one of the reasons, aside from uh, Tim Kaine's uh, heroic legislative work, that I think uh, led to the Iran resolution. Uh, uh, just was that a year ago, Tim? A little bit over a year ago. Yeah, yeah. a year plus ago. And, and um, by, by uh, accommodating and compromising and, and, and making the, the rounds, Tim was able to get you know, a majority of colleagues to sign on to that. Uh, not a veto-proof majority, but demonstrated that politically, I think this is feasible and the environment is, is, is right. Uh, but I do agree that when it comes down to the mechanics of actually drafting, a new O1 AUMF, it can become uh, very complicated. I want to pick up on the zombie mm -hmm. language, which I love. I quoted it in my <laughs> paper. I thought it was terrific. Um, I had to explain in a footnote for the youngsters what zombies <laughs> authorizations were. Um, um, and, and have you make the nightmare argument. In other words, yeah. a future president of, let's say, the Republican Party, that you're going to convince your colleagues, just imagine. Mm -hmm. At a time way down the road, President X would do this if we leave these around. And then I want to flip the script and ask you to make the argument to Lindsey Graham and the other senators who may be a little reluctant to repeal these authorizations. So what is the, what is the nightmare scenario? So here's, here's my nightmare scenario, and it's probably easier to make it with the O-1 authorization. So the O-1 authorization, as you say, go after the perpetrators of 9-1. But I, I, want, those, I want to stop there for a second. Yeah. I, it could be, I, I don't, don't be rude. Yeah. I want, to, I want to try to focus on the nightmare scenario for leaving the 2002 and the 91 sure. AUMF okay. on the book. Um, let, let's just use what the Trump administration said about the Soleimani strike. Um, the, the 91 and 02 authorizations were about toppling the government of, you know, in, in one, pushing Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, enforcing the UN security resolutions, then toppling that government. Um, 
President Trump after the Soleimani strike, they did cite the O2 authorization. It's like, well, it happened in Iraq, so the 2002 authorization warrants it. Well, wait a minute. This was, this was essentially the military leader of the sovereign nation of Iran. The United States has not declared war in Iran. Um, maybe we would have a debate about it and vote to do that, but we haven't done that. And so basically what the Trump team did was try to bootstrap this, this Iraq resolution, which is now, you know, dead letter, into justification for taking out the military leadership of a sovereign nation against whom we hadn't declared war. That could have led us, I mean, you know, I don't want to get into more than I want to say in an open setting, but we were close a couple of times to being in a shooting war with Iran without Congress debating it. And that is a nightmare scenario because whatever you would think about whether that would be a good idea in the military, if they, if they talk about what would it mean to be at a war with Iran, look, this is very serious stuff. I mean, this is not like an Iraq where the U.S. had complete air mastery over Iraqi airspace or even a war in Afghanistan. We had complete air mastery over Afghan war space. That would not be the case in Iraq. So a war against Iran would be a very, very different kind of thing than we've seen in the Middle East in the last 50 years, and we shouldn't blunder into it. And a lot of wars get blundered into. This is a problem, you know, war, the, the guns of August scenario, World War I. The number of wars that are carefully thought out and planned, we really need to go to war, and here's why, versus the ones that you kind of blunder into. You blunder into a lot of them, and you don't want to blunder into a big consequential one um, because there's a you know zombie authorization out there that a president can just grab onto and say, hey, let's let's do this. And so, so there, these are the things that really worry me. It's actually a similar argument. I okay. mean, I, you mentioned my 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 colleague Lindsay, uh, who who uh, is is a self-styled hawk, uh, but but no one cares about the troops more than Lindsay. Uh, no one will be more vocal and more critical of, of a president who makes an unwise foreign policy decision uh, than Lindsay. So uh, I, I think uh, I think the argument is essentially the same. We need to be intentional. We need to be deliberate. But we need to reassure uh, those of us who who may draft and then uh, introduce uh, a change to the 01 AUMF. We need to reassure someone like Lindsey Graham and be able to uh, answer his very intelligent questions uh, about how there will be no gaps in legal authorities uh, to go out and kill bad guys or, or, or the leaders of bad groups, um, how, that, uh, how, how we will still maintain a measure of control, how we're not circumscribing the president's authority in, in any sort of uh, important fashion. Um, so that reassurance is, is our duty. Uh, so that's going to have to be bundled with, uh, with sort of the horror story threat uh, that you present to them. So let's get down to the nitty gritty on the politics, the House side, the Senate side, and how we get this uh, to the finish line, if we could. Um, uh, as you know, Senator Barbara Lee of California has sponsored a bill to repeal 2002 AMF. Uh, it reported favorably out of the House Foreign Affairs Committee in March. And as you know, the House has voted on this a few times in recent years, but no other actions have been taken. I know Representative Mike Gallagher, a fellow Marine, uh, has sponsored a bill mm -hmm. to repeal the 2002, mm -hmm. the 1991, and I think my 1957. Yeah, I think he, I think he added in your 1957. <laughs> Eisenhower Middle East Force mm -hmm. Resolution uh, for good measure. Um, how do these come together? How, walk us through the mechanics of this. What, what is the 
the, the half glass full scenario? How, how does this happen? Well, you want to start, Todd? Well, I mean, I, in defense of the Senate as an institution, <laughs> I, I want to observe that uh, uh, the representative Lee has, has also been tireless and, and, and shown a great deal of leadership on this issue. Uh, there's a simple majority threshold to pass legislation out of the House of Representatives. And we spend a great deal of our time, especially in the modern era, uh, confirming nominees uh, on the Foreign Relations Committee. Those, those would be top level sort of national security nominees. So uh, the amount of time we have uh, to dedicate towards this and the threshold we have to reach, which is 60 votes, uh, makes it uh, more challenging. So uh, it, it's not unlikely that we would see uh, the House Act first. But um, as it relates to the 02 repeal and the 91 repeal, if we get a business meeting, uh, uh, as, as uh, I know Chairman Menendez has, has signaled may happen in fairly short order, and we'll have an opportunity to act fairly quickly. The one question that's a bit open is, is how much floor time uh, will be taken uh, debating this matter as, as colleagues get comfortable with this. And, and here, here is my belief about the floor time. This would be what I would hope. We'd pass it out of foreign relations. And I think we will. I think it'll pass with, you know, maybe two thirds of the foreign relations committee. And uh, particularly if we get the green light from the White House, that's really going to help. Okay, then it's on the floor. Um, we will likely have a floor debate on the defense authorizing bill. We'll, we'll get the defense bill out of SASC maybe in mid-June. We could have a floor debate on the defense bill in um, July, and we could bring this up as an amendment to the defense bill because it's gone through committee. You know, the chairman wouldn't stand up and say, wait a minute, you're taking something, you know, out of my jurisdiction. No, the committee's already considered it and it's already on the floor. So nobody's going to have a jurisdictional, you know, gripe about it. And I think we could have a really robust debate about this repeal um, as part of the defense bill. And I think the House folks are thinking about it. The same way some of the folks like uh, Mike Gallagher and others are, you know, active on the House side on armed services matters. So I think this could this could easily be part of the easily. I need to be careful about it, it could be part of the defense bill that this year. And I view this as a climbing the ladder exercise. Do the 01 and 02 repeal. You mean in, the 91 and 02. Do do that repeal. Then next tackle the the harder issue of can you redraft 01. Then next tackle the even harder issue, can you fix the constitutional infirmities and the war powers res, both constitutional and just kind of process political practical infirmities in the war powers resolution to try to make it more suitable for today rather than 1974. But exercise the muscle on the first one, okay, great, we did it. Get to the second one, which is a little bit harder, get to the third one, which is harder still. Yeah, which is what we've argued for in our paper. Uh, pick up on where he left off. Uh, and if you wanna open up the discussion about the war powers resolution, Jump in. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, we can get steps A and B done. Uh, that's that's a, a pretty heavy lift. I think A is, is uh, much easier than B, but B being the, the 01 AUMF. Uh, but, but we came close in committee. We came very, very close. It was one vote difference uh, yeah. from, from passing uh, a new a, uh, 01 AUMF construct out of committee with a different president in office uh, who who uh, had not spent years, decades working on this issue uh, like President Biden has. Um, and, and then if you get past that hurdle, uh, gosh, you know, war powers, at least engaging and working with this administration, um, 
I have some tempered optimism uh, because uh, it was it was President Biden himself, while in the Senate in the 90s, who put forward uh, a use of force bill that would have uh, rewritten the War Powers Resolution. So uh, I, 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 we have a uh, we we have uh, an administration that uh, uh, might uh, might uh, work with uh, Republicans and Democrats who, who have some passion on this issue to rewrite this, and already has some ideas in mind about how to uh, rewrite War Powers. Encouraged like him because you know the old saying, "Where you sit is where you stand." Yep. Yeah. Uh, and so, and all of a sudden, now he's the commander in chief. Right. And he yeah. may have some <laughs> reluctance. Right. All Getting all sudden. kinds of advice. Right. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, that's right. important. Yeah. He may see it exactly yeah. the same way as he did eight years ago, but everybody around him sees it a lot differently than you know. So, um, so no, I, I'm 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 optimistic about it. That you you've written a lot about the War Powers Resolution and about the challenges of it. And there, there are all kinds of challenges. You know, there was an initial constitutional challenge that some parts of the resolution allowed Congress to take an action that the president couldn't veto. And so that probably is a constitutional infirmity. Um, presidents have followed the War Powers Resolution, you know, just perfectly on the providing notice, and not a single one has followed on the stopping action if Congress doesn't approve. So there's a big weakness there. But also, war has changed. I mean, we, we have to grapple with, well, what is war? I mean, how about a cyber attack on a pipeline? How about a cyber attack on an election system? Um, how about a drone strike? You know, that's not war. That was just a drone strike. So we have to grapple with the, the, the reality of non-state actors that, you know, in war powers resolution, we're still thinking about war against Vietnam or, you know, war against a nation. There's a lot of conceptual issues that, to, to bring the war powers resolution up today, you have to fix some problems, but you also have to define some thorny issues that have gotten more complicated. And every administration, Republican and Democrat, have argued that the war powers resolution is unconstitutional. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, it has warped or perverted or changed the calculus on what they consider actually military action. So right. they've defined that a lot of different ways mm -hmm. to get activity in that they otherwise wouldn't if they followed the war powers resolution to the strict letter of the law. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, I'm going to try something a little different. Are there, is a, is there a question that I should have asked that I didn't, or a question you have of Senator Young or vice versa, something you think needs to be teased out in this discussion on the politics or the policy side? Well, I, I would say the discussion has shown some, but let me summarize it. I think stars are aligning in an interesting way because you have a Democratic president, and if there was a Republican reluctance to assert Article I authority against a Republican president, it's not so strong against a Democratic president. You have a president who completely understands the Article I issues and, and, and does not assume that any effort by Congress to be proudly Article I is cutting across his space. And so some of the, you know, some of the ego walls may be down in different places that could make this more possible. You also have, you know, look the president's announcement about Afghanistan. And again, there's all kinds of differences of opinion about whether that was a good or a bad announcement, but it does kind of put on the table if, if that's going to happen. Okay, well, where, what is the continuing vitality of the 2001 authorization? It really forces us to redefine what it is. And, and so I think that, I just think kind of stars are aligning 
that you know i'm 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 too optimistic about everything my senior senator mark warner has always given me trouble for that and i say that just means you and i on average are average because you're too <laughs> pessimistic about everything um but i kind of see this as an alignment and i will say you know todd has been a great partner on this and i always say about any partner in the senate democratic or republican this is my test for a good partner if i can convince you on the merits will you stick with me no matter what the polls are, no matter what party leadership says. Now, maybe I can't convince you on the merits. I can't convince you on the substantive merits. Can't convince you that politically it's a smart thing to do. Maybe the timing's bad. But Todd is somebody who, if I can convince him on the merits, then I, I never have to worry. He's he's going to stick. And I think being on the committee together, I think we have a good opportunity with our colleagues now. And and more joining, even without his arm twisting, more joining. Well, Tim's too kind. I mean, we we all know what leadership he's shown for. Uh, ever since he got into the Senate uh, with respect to this issue, walking point on it. Um, I I just want to underscore his point about the Afghanistan, the forcing mechanism that will create for us to debate this, uh, hmm. the, the broader issue of, of, of war powers and, and our responsibilities um, within the Foreign Relations Committee. And, and, and hopefully we begin to see people wrestling with this on the floor of the United States Senate. We'll see it in the House of Representatives as well. I also think that, uh, and the polls reflect this, the, the polls reflect uh, that the American people are, are exhausted. Uh, so um, uh, we are charged with refining and enlarging, to use Madison's uh, term, refining and enlarging the views of the electorate, and, and the views have changed. And, and so it's, it's our job to be attentive to that, responsive to our constituents, and, and uh, at last grapple with this very uh, longstanding uh, unaddressed issue. And uh, so for that reason, I, 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 again, have, you know, tempered optimism mm -hmm. about our ability not only to repeal uh, 91, no two, uh, but also a one. And the 57. <laughs> and the 57. I wanted to give you an eighth <laughs> opportunity to bring that up, um, my good friend. <laughs> um, we're in a hybrid format because we're still in the tail of COVID. Uh, I don't know if we have questions. We do have a few questions. And uh, senators, if you don't mind staying around Great. for a couple of questions. First question, how do you respond? I know you're I, I, so I would say on that, look, the 01 authorization is still out there to um, to give us the ability to go after non-state actors. And that's the challenge right now, the, the non-state actors. And we'll refine that. But I, I wouldn't favor repealing 01 until we come up with the refinement. There are some in the repeal and then talk about replace. I'm in the revise and then repeal space on 01. So I think 91 and 02, you know, uh, gives up nothing. Um, and I, I had a debate. And I don't think it'll be understood by anyone as giving up anything either. Yeah. And I think, and tell me if you disagree with me, I think uh, questions like that, and I've heard that refrain, as I know you have, specifically are referring to the 2001, no matter which AUMF you're talking about. Right. Because they're channeling that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and there might be some merit in that, you know, because that is a paradig paradigmatic shift if we end the war, because that's right. essentially what you're doing if you repeal the 2001. Next question, please. Well, could I add something? Yeah. And this is, uh, I, I just had 
uh, an experience in an unrelated area of, of, of legislating where uh, this uh, hit home. But uh, this is where educating fellow members uh, mm -hmm. becomes very important. There is, uh, and I'm not going to speak normatively about whether or not this is the right thing to do, but uh, there, there's an imperative uh, by the Biden administration to get a lot of things done, uh, utilizing this simple majority vote reconciliation tool uh, multiple times this year. So uh, they're eager to get a lot of things done, and therefore, uh, the majority leader, Chuck Schumer, is, is going to try and, and utilize you know, every single day uh, to the maximum amount. Well, that doesn't afford a lot of opportunity in the run-up uh, to debating some of these measures to educate our colleagues on what exactly yeah. we're accomplishing, right? Right, mm -hmm. And uh, things could be highly misunderstood. So that's something that Tim and I, that's a risk factor. As a former Intel officer, my job was to go out there and assess risk. Uh, and then report them out and address them where possible. But this is something we're going to have to be attentive to, just making sure that uh, uh, my colleagues don't misunderstand what this is all about. I think if they understand, I think they're in. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to start with the policy mm -hmm. and sort of yes. the smell miss, and then we get to the politics. Katie. What do you make of some excerpts assertion that the real purpose behind the repeal is to tie the president's hands to address the ongoing threat from Iran and its proxies throughout the region. So look, we shouldn't be at war with Iran if, if unless we do an authorization to go against Iran or respond to, as, as Senator Young mentioned, an ongoing attack or an imminent attack. And the president can do that without us. I mean, the president has the power as commander in chief to defend the United States against an ongoing attack or an imminent attack. And there's little subjectivity there, and sort of the tie goes to the president on that subjectivity. When the president says it's ongoing or it's imminent, you know, the president gets some latitude there. So there's Article One power to deal with Iran and proxies, but this O2 authorization has nothing. It had zero. 91 and O2 had zero to do with Iran, and so you don't want to you don't want to bootstrap in to 91 and O2 the ability to go after Iran. The president should have to come to the U.S. and say, look, Iran is such a threat that we need independent authority with Iran, but we shouldn't bootstrap it from 91 and 02 authorizations, which are unrelated. And if we ever were uh, to engage in, in, in a military conflict with uh, Iran that didn't involve some imminent threat to our country, uh, we would want the American people fully united behind that effort. We, we want uh, minimal controversy. Uh, in the end, and, and that only would occur, I believe, uh, through robust debate within Congress. And it's, it's beyond any dispute that Iran paid for mercenaries and other third country nationals to flood into Iraq and Afghanistan. Absolutely. We detained a lot of them. We mm -hmm. let some of them go, and they came right back. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking yeah. about full-fledged uh, armed conflict against a nation state, mm -hmm. and that's different, and that's where Congress has a critical role. Yep. Um, so I want to leave a minute for each of you to give us your concluding remarks. And since you used to work here, and this is your first time, I'm going to defer to your uh, colleague. Uh, uh, dang, I thought you were going to make him go first. <laughs> um, hmm. If you want to go first, you go right ahead. Yeah, I'll go ahead because he's, yeah. Tim's going to come up with some sort of uh, amazing, profound close <laughs> I here. I don't know. I've done this for a uh, period of time. But uh, so – Look, I, I uh, hailing from the great state of Indiana, I've become uh, 
fairly close professional friends uh, with former chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Lee Hamilton, someone uh, for whom I have great respect. And, and um, you know, we, one day we were discussing Afghanistan and, and um, his view on the matter in the end, after discussing a lot of, of strategy and, and uh, other national security implications were, um, you know, Todd, in the end, my threshold, and everyone has a different sort of threshold, but my threshold when it comes to the authorization of use of military forces, whether, whether or not you would send your own yeah. son or daughter into a particular conflict zone, is the national interest that important? Mm -hmm. And we're being, frankly, we're, we're avoiding that decision on a, on a uh, consistent basis in Congress. So I think we have a real moral imperative, not just a legal imperative, but a moral imperative to act uh, so that each of us can individually make those decisions and be held accountable by our constituents in the end for the wisdom or unwisdom of our decisions. I'd also note that uh, I can think of no more appropriate time with uh, arguably our closest ally in, in the world, uh, the country of Israel, uh, under assault right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are essentially in the middle of a war right now. Uh, our country has consistently uh, stood with and will stand with uh, the, the people of Israel, but we have an opportunity here to ensure that uh, when we go to war, we do it right. And uh, I thank you yeah. for the opportunity and the platform uh, to uh, make that argument. Senator King? Well, the, the, Todd's comments then jogged my, me to put my comment in this space. So with my boy in the Marines for eight years, and he's now a reservist, he's transitioned from active to reserve about a year ago. First time I cast a war vote in the Foreign Relations Committee was over whether the U.S. should engage in missile strikes in Syria after the use of chemical weapons against civilians. And I, I remember that debate in August of 2013. And I, I just thought, you know, man, I cast thousands of votes. Lieutenant Governor, Lieutenant Governor, I only cast high votes because they're very few. But, you know, I was working on a lot of issues where you had to take a position. And I remember casting that committee vote. Narrow missiles at content, but I this is should be a very different kind of vote and maybe a really hard vote. And we shouldn't, you know, we job. And you know, the, the men and women who volunteer in an all volunteer military brave, and we shouldn't be chicken about casting tough votes. Well, on behalf of the Heritage Foundation, uh, I want to thank both of you. You both have um, been tireless advocates for not only the men and women in our military, but also making sure that Congress has skin in the game. Uh, and I wish you the best of luck in your policy uh, uh, goals here. Uh, I hope that you achieve them. Uh, we're certainly written uh, about this, and we, we think that it is sound policy, and we don't think there's any reason for the Congress or the Senate not to get behind this, and then leave for another day, the 2001 AUMF, which is the hard, the big tamale, the hard thing to really get behind. Uh, and and um, so as a, a token of our appreciation, we'd like to give you a, uh, a collected edition of the Heritage Guide to the Constitution, thousands of essays by thousands of scholars on each and every provision in the Constitution. And we, uh, with that, we are adjourned. Thank you. So glad we could do it. Thank you. Thank you.